0: Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmanuel.org. Your regular financial contributions make it possible for Beth Emanuel to make D. Thomas Lancaster's weekly sermons available online. We genuinely appreciate your support and hope that you are blessed by these teachings. Feel free to download these audio files and share them with your friends and family. Please consider joining Beth Emanuel's extended virtual family and support our efforts for the kingdom with a gift by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmanuel.org. So in First Clement 59, it begins with the words, "If certain people should disobey what has been said by him through us, let them understand that they will entangle themselves in no small sin and danger." So that's it. The argument's over. We've all, he's already made his case. Uh, in the last couple chapters, he made his appeal, his final appeal. That the insurrectionists should repent, they should turn around, they should turn 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 back, and um, maybe even leave the fellowship rather than to cause this trouble. Says, but if they won't, if they won't repent, they're warned, let them be warned. He goes on to say, we, however, will be innocent of this sin. Which is a strange thing to say. Of course they're going to be innocent of this sin. What is it, Clement? Clement isn't an insurrectionist. He's not the one who is splitting the Corinthian congregation. Why would he say, we will be innocent of this, and he and the the other elders at at Rome will be innocent of it? They're not even involved. Well, what he's referring to, this is actually an allusion to an important passage in Torah from Parshat Keroshim, Leviticus 19, verse 17, that says, you will surely reprove your neighbor or rebuke your neighbor but shall not incur sin because of him. The way that Clement seems to be understanding this, as an elder, a disciple of the apostles, he is in a position where it's incumbent upon him to rebuke them for the sin. And if he does not, he'll be culpable for it. And so what he's doing is uh, he's writing this epistle, he's written this long epistle, this whole epistle is his fulfillment of of Leviticus 19.17. And so he's basically saying, okay, now I've done my job, I've rebuked you, I've warned you, I've even laid out a path of repentance for you, and now I'm washing my hands of you if you, if, if you don't take my advice on this matter. So he says, we, however... We'll, oh, you know, there's uh, some, uh, John, there's some papers over there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, however, will be innocent of this sin and will ask with earnest prayer and supplication that the creator of the universe may keep intact the specified number of his elect throughout the whole world through his beloved servant. What? When I read that the first time, I thought, well, oh, what does this have something to do with predestination or something like this? You know, listen to that, the... Uh, He will keep intact the specified number of his elect. You see, there's a specified number, those who are predestined and that sort of thing. Wait a second. Read that again. That's not what it's about at all. Instead, it's a backhanded curse. It's a backhanded imprecation. In other words... Some of you aren't. Some of you aren't. If you won't repent... You're not part of this number of elect here. So we're going to pray for those who are part of the elect, and that's not you (laughs) if you don't repent, if you don't turn back. It says, We, however, will be innocent of the sin and will ask with earnest prayer and supplication the Creator of the universe may keep intact the specified number of his elect throughout the whole world through his beloved servant, Jesus Christ, the servant of Hashem, that's the title of the Messiah. Through whom he called us from darkness to light, from ignorance to knowledge of the glory of his name. And now is when the prayer begins. He said, we're going to pray. He said, we're going to pray for it. And you can choose to be in this prayer or out of this prayer that we're going to pray. Included in the number of the elect or not. And now the prayer starts and it commences for three chapters. Honestly, I wanted to, you know, I, I found this a little difficult because this prayer takes so many biblical allusions and mashes them up together mm-hmm. so quickly, just like the Sudur does. You ever notice in our Siddurs, the number, like you ever look down in the apparatus, the number of biblical quotations or allusions to biblical citations, I just, like there's, there's a bazillion footnotes on every page. This one is the same way, just like Jewish liturgy. Clement's prayer reads just like Jewish liturgy in that regard. And so I wanted to find all these, and I found it very difficult. So I, I've laid out some of them for you here. Uh, but you'll notice this note that I, I put here. Clement's closing prayer begins by combining quotations and allusions from Numbers 27, Deuteronomy 32, verse second. 1 Samuel 2, 1 Kings 8, 2 Kings 5, 19, Job 5, Psalm 32, 79, 95, 100, 119, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 57, Ezekiel 36, Judith 9, Sirach 16, Ephesians 1. Pretty good, huh? Yeah, I got that from the footnote um, on the next page. <laughs> yeah, But um, nevertheless, I, I did try to find some specifics as, uh, on the handout here. Let's look at the prayer. Before I do, there's two prayers I'd like you to n- compare it to in your head. You're all familiar with the Amidah, the Shmoneh or the 18 blessings. And you're all familiar with the Our Father. So you'll, you'll hear echoes of both in this prayer. It clearly has a lot of affinity, that is a lot of sameness with Jewish uh, prayers, with typical Jewish prayers and typical Jewish ways of formulating prayers, but it doesn't necessarily follow a specific pattern that I can say it's just like this prayer, or it's just like that prayer. Instead, I see more under the influence of the broader liturgical prayer. When we will work through the prayer, and when we get to the end of the prayer, let's figure out what's this prayer about. You know, every prayer has a specific function. You don't just pray for nothing. Every prayer has a specific target in mind. So what's the subject matter. What's the target of the prayer? Alright, let's get going. Starts in verse 3. Grant us, Lord, to hope on your name. Grant us, Hashem, to hope on your name, which is the primal source of all creation. Primal source of all creation. Hashem's name, it's the, 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 the beginning, it's the power, uh, the, the root of the universe. And open the eyes of our hearts, that we may know you, who alone is highest among high, and remains holy among the holy. So right, as far as we've gone so far, I'd like to connect this in your mind with the first words of the Our Father. It's an address. The prayer starts with an address, just like the Amidah starts with an address. You know, so you can imagine it's like the address on the front of a uh, on an envelope that you're sending a letter to Hashem. So you write on the front of the, you know, who is this letter to? It's to our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be Thy name. You know, that's basically what you have here. The Creator of the universe, holy among the holy, His name is high among the high. Hallowed be Thy name. The Amidah starts with a an address. Blessed are you. Blessed are who? Blessed are you, Lord our God, God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Oh, that God, the God who you know, and it goes on and on, like this, right? That's an address. First, the first bracha is an address. This is who I'm praying to. Then it goes on with some descriptions. You humble the pride of the proud. You destroy the plans of the nations. You exalt the humble and humble the exalted. You make rich and make poor. You kill and make alive. Now this comes from some different places, but especially from 1 Samuel 2, from Hannah's prayer. These are the words of Hannah's prayer. Now, something that's interesting about Hannah's prayer that you may not realize is that Hannah is considered to be the mother of Jewish prayer. Mm -hmm. Jewish liturgy is based on Hannah's prayer and on Hannah's posture of prayer. For example, when Hannah prays, Eli observes her mouth moving but does not hear the words. This is why the Amidah is prayed silently. Because that's like the highest point of prayer. You know, the Amidah is like where you're just, it's just you and Hashem. It's just you're, you're in, you know, you're locked in. And that's, uh, that's learned from Hannah. And uh, the Talmud even says so. This is why. It's because of Hannah. There's all sorts of things uh, in that story of 1 Samuel 1 and 2. The sage is used to derive principles of Jewish prayer and Jewish liturgy. And another place that we find Hannah's prayer having influence is, of course, the Magnificat, uh, of the, which is the Song of Mary. So we find these sentiments... Oh, and you know, another thing about Hannah's prayer is it's the foundation of so much messianic imagery in that Hannah is the mother of the kingmaker. And so prior to Hannah's miracle, her prayer and her miracle, there is no king in Israel. There's no monarch in Israel. Hannah is like the, uh, she's, she gets that whole thing going. So she's the one talking about raising the horn of your Messiah, the raising the horn of your anointed and that sort of thing. Hannah uh, brings out the idea of the resurrection of the dead and kills and makes alive and in that order. (laughs) She puts it in that order. You know, it's interesting to me. It's just interesting that so many of these allusions here are coming from Hannah's prayer. We're still speaking and we're describing God. You alone are the benefactor of spirits and the God of all flesh. A benefactor is kind of a Roman word that's a roman era word. A benefactor is like that's that's your city official or maybe your provincial official or someone who presents himself as the benefactor of the people. Why Because he built the public bath and put in an aqueduct and a you know a new road you know that's that kind of language. Clement uses that kind of language to describe Hashem as a benefactor of spirits of. Of the, of the neshama. And the God of all flesh who looks into the depths. When he says looks into the depths, I'm picturing looking into the depths of the sea. But that's not it, is it? He's the God, is uh, a benefactor of the neshama and the God of the flesh. So you've got body and soul and he looks into the depths then of the heart, the human heart, right? Who scans the works of man the helper of those who are in peril, the savior of those in despair, the creator and guardian of every spirit who multiplies the nations upon the earth and from among all of them have chosen those who love you through Jesus Christ, your beloved servant, through whom you instructed us, sanctified us, and honored us. This is very similar to so many sentiments you hear in Jewish liturgy. I mean, how often do you hear in the kiddush or something like this, who has sanctified us from among the nations or has chosen us from every tongue and people. These sorts of sentiments are just Clement has taken these sorts of ideas and just slightly turned them. Slightly turned them whereas previously they were an ethnocentric exclusives uh, saying, uh, you know, who has made us the Jewish people it, to the exclusion of the nations. He's turned it just slightly to say, you've made all the nations and you've chosen individuals from the nations and sanctified us uh, to the exclusion of the rest of the people in the nations. But it's the same you know, it's the same language that's just being presented slightly differently. I used to say the Kiddush, that standard Kiddush on before we came up with the new line in the Kiddush, I used to say that standard Kiddush for, you know, what, 20 years? You know, uh, you know, I'd say that over and over, and every time I'd be like, trying to have the right Kavana, you know, trying to have the right thought in my head, who has sanctified us, from the nations who has sanctified us uh, in trying to think like exactly as Clement had put it here, now we could have used this. <laughs> could have just been saying this the whole time. I mean, this would work perfectly for a kiddish. He goes on to make his first petition. So so far we've had an address. It's all been an address. It's been talking about God. What God? This God. The God who does this, the God who does that. The God who's like this, the God who's like that. He does this, he does that. Now we're ready to, we, we've definitely dialed in here on Hashem. We're ready to start with our petition. So first petition, verse 4. We ask you, Master, to be our helper and protector. Okay, great. Who doesn't need a helper and a protector? That's, that sounds pretty general, don't you think? Helper and protector. Now listen to this: save those among us who are in distress. Yeah, that sounds good and you know, people are in distress. you don't want people to be distressed. Yeah, so I'm thinking, what does this have to do with anything that we've read for the last 58 chapters? <laughs> you know? I mean it's a very nice prayer. Don't get me wrong, it's a very nice prayer, but I would if you know he's definitely not preaching. <laughs> you know you know what preaching is? yeah, okay. Yeah, pray preaching. He's definitely not preaching because if he was preaching, he'd be like, "Oh Lord, have mercy on these sinful Corinthian schismatics. You know, may you soften their hearts to, you know, that sort of thing." But instead, um, he seems to be just giving us this general help us, uh, help uh, be our helper and protector and save those among us who are in distress. Have mercy on the humble. Raise up the fallen. Show yourself to those in need. Heal the godless. Heal the godless. Actually, there's a textual variant on that. In one of the Clement manuscripts, it should be heal the sick. Have mercy on the humble. Raise up the fallen. Show yourself to those in need. Heal the sick. Now, to me, when I hear that series, that sounds very much like the second paracha of the Amidah. Phrase for phrase. We can match that up with the Gevura, blessing in the Amidah who resurrects the dead, that blessing. And I've got, he's abundantly able to save, he supports the fallen, he sustains the living with loving kindness, he heals the sick. Those are all lines from from that blessing. So raise up the fallen, show yourself to those in need, heal the sick, turn back those of your people who wander, feed the hungry, release our prisoners, raise up the weak, comfort the discouraged and let all nations know that you are the only god and that Jesus Christ is your servant and that we are your people and the sheep of your pasture those sound like beautiful sentiments as well but still as i'm reading this i'm still not, it's not registering for me what is the connection to the preceding material instead these sound like general Sentiments. Yeah, that all nations should know, you know, and uh you know you should do all this stuff for those who need it, and and uh, all nations should know that you are God, you know, you, you your Messiah, your servant Yeshua that is, is your servant, and that we're your people. And so these are all again, these are quotations that are pulled from various places in the scripture. We have to go on to chapter sixty. We're gonna to get to the bottom of this. It's sort of a mystery, it's a riddle. I have you wondering what? Why are we praying like this? What does this beautiful prayer? It's a beautiful prayer. Everybody agrees it's a beautiful prayer. But what does it have to do with why is it tacked on here at the end? It's almost like, you know, I think some scholars have suggested that that it doesn't belong here. That it's just tacked on. Yeah, we should throw in a prayer. For you through works have revealed the everlasting structure of the world. Through your works, you've revealed the everlasting structure of the world. That's how chapter 60 begins. I don't know what that means. I'm open to your suggestions. Uh, you, through your works, have revealed the everlasting structure of the world. I mean, two possibilities, my ideas here. Uh, first of all, it's just like, you've revealed yourself through nature. Okay, maybe. Or what if it's, um, you've revealed the resurrection of the dead and the world to come. Through nature, because remember a couple chapters ago when Clement did that big appeal to nature section to prove the resurrection? Could be that. You, Lord, created. So now do you see that we're back in the address mode here? So I'm calling this address two. We've moved back to the address mode. The Amidah does this too. With each of its petitions, each of its blessings, it'll move back to an address. Uh, and then, and then at, make make the next petition. For you, through your works, have revealed the everlasting structure of the world. You, Lord, created the earth. You are faithful throughout all generations, righteous in your judgments, marvelous in strength and majesty, wise in creating, prudent in establishing what exists, good in all that is observed, and faithful to those who trust you. Merciful and compassionate. And now the petition, second petition. Forgive us our sins and our injustices, our transgressions and our shortcomings. Corresponding to forgive us our sins, forgive us our sins and our injustices, our transgressions, our shortcomings. Do not take into account every sin of your servants and slave girls. Your servants, serv- that sounds so weird. Servants and slave girls, but remember, servants is this, that, that's the same word in Greek. It's the same word for slaves. So it should read. Do not take into account every sin of your slaves and female slaves. Or you could say your men's servants and women's servants. I don't know, whatever. But cleanse us with the cleansing of your truth. And direct our steps to walk in holiness and righteousness and purity of heart. And to do what is good and pleasing in your sight and in the sight of our rulers. So we're asking Hashem, you know, purify us, put us on the right path, help us to do the right thing. Now, uh, third petition. Third petition begins in verse 3. Yes, Lord, let your face shine upon us in peace for our good, that we may be sheltered by your mighty arm or my, your mighty hand, and delivered from every sin by your uplifted arm. These are messianic titles, your mighty hand, your uplifted arm. Uh, in Isaiah and in the Psalms, these are titles that apply to the Messiah. Deliver us as well from those who hate us unjustly, you know, which reminds me of deliver us from evil. Give harmony and peace to us, and to all who dwell on the earth, just as you did to our fathers when they reverently called upon you in faith and truth, that we may be saved. Now, I broke this I broke this down into two petitions for you. You can see petition three and petition four. I broke it down into faith, a prayer for favor in verse three, and a prayer for peace in verse four. But now when I'm rereading it to you, I think that was a mistake. I think the whole thing is for peace. Uh, just like... The last blessing of the Amida, the last blessing of the Amida is a prayer for peace. Remember, it's a uh, place peace upon us, and shine your face upon us, the light of your countenance. For by the light of your countenance, we have you know the light of your face. So we've got the same thing going on here. It's, this is corresponding to the last blessing of the Amida. So I think this was a mistake on the sheet, uh, and we should collapse petition. 3 and 4 into one petition and that's a petition for peace. We're saying to do what is good and pleasing in your sight in in your sight and in the sight of our rulers. Okay. Now, here's the one for peace, peaceful thoughts. Yes, Lord, let your face shine upon us in peace. See, this is a response to the priestly bl- blessing. For good, that we may be sheltered by your mighty hand and delivered from every sin by your uplifted arm. Deliver us as well from those who hate us unjustly. Give harmony and peace to us and to all who dwell on the earth, just as you did to our fathers when they reverently called upon you in faith and truth that we may be saved. Isn't that peaceful? While we, for our part, you do that for us, while we, for our part, render obedience to your almighty and most excellent name and to our rulers and governors on earth. But again, throughout chapter 60, I'm impressed that there's no preaching. I can't find preaching here. I mean, that would be very, very subtle preaching if, if that was the case. Instead, what do we have here? Forgive us our sins. Shine your face upon us. Uh, Help us to walk in the right ways that will be pleasing to you and to our rulers. And give us peace. And uh, we'll obey you and our rulers and governors on earth. And this is the key. Our rulers and governors on earth. As we move into chapter 61, everything becomes clear. All right. So let's clarify. Chapter 61. You, Hashem, have given them the power and sovereignty through your majestic and inexpressible might, so that we, acknowledging the glory and honor which you have given to them, may be subject to them, resisting your will in nothing. All right, so who's the them here? It goes back, the antecedent to that pronoun is the rulers and governors on earth from the, previous, uh, the end of the previous chapter. Now you might think, is he talking about ecclesiastical rulers and governors like like the the congregational leadership? No. I thought that, and I was wrong. (laughs) He's not. Grant to them, Hashem, health, peace, harmony, stability, that they may blamelessly administer the government which you have given to them. So you see what's happening here. We're praying for the Roman government. He's praying for the Romans. He's praying that the Roman. He's saying, May, may Caesar Domitian have health, peace, harmony, and stability. You know, may, may, the, may the Senate have health, peace, harmony, and stability. May all the proconsuls have health, harmony, peace, stability, and may they blamelessly administer the government which you've given to them. For you, Heavenly Master, King of Ages, give to the sons of men glory and honor and authority over those upon earth. Now, this is the deck giveaway, I think, at least from a Jewish perspective. When it speaks of Hashem giving glory and honor and authority. Have you ever heard the bracha for when you see a Gentile king? I, I put it on your sheet. It's in your siddur. If you ever look up those, you know, that section of the siddur, it has all these miscellaneous uh, brachot for different things, like if you see a rainbow, you hear thunder. There's all these different blessings that you make. And so there's even a blessing for when you see a great king. And here it is. I put it on your sheet. Uh, The blessing for uh, a Gentile king, for seeing a a great king. Blessed are you, Hashem our God, King of the universe, who has given of his glory to flesh and blood. So the idea here, this Jewish idea, is that Hashem lends out his honor and his glory to the rulers of the earth, to the government officials and to these, uh, these monarchs. And that's exactly what Clement is saying. And there's exactly the same theological idea he's invoking. He's saying, we obey them uh, because you've given uh, the sons of men, flesh and blood, it says in in the bracha, to the sons of men, glory and honor and authority to those upon the earth. Now, here's the petition that goes with that. Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight. So that by devoutly administering in peace and gentleness the authority which you have given them, they may experience your mercy. So he's asking Hashem to get involved in their policy making. He's saying, Hashem, get involved in the Senate. Go into the Senate and uh, influence the outcome of these decisions that are being made. Go, go to the go to the palace and uh, influence Domitian's decisions that are being made. You who alone are able to do these and even greater good things for us, we praise through the High Priest and the Guardian of our souls, Jesus Christ. This is the signing off part of the prayer. Uh, we say in the in Jesus' name, Amen. We've come to the, in Jesus' name, amen part. But in the first century, in Jesus' name, amen sounded like this. Uh, We praise you through the high priest and guardian of our souls, Jesus Christ, through whom be the glory and the majesty to you both now and for all generations and forever and ever. Amen, which is the eighth doxology. Okay, that's it. That's the prayer. What did we learn? We We had a sweet doxology at the end that functions as the amen. Uh, the signature, I'm calling it the signature, where we sign off and, you know, over and out, signing out in Yeshua's name, Amen. Uh, we have that piece. But we still haven't really solved the riddle of what this prayer has to do with anything with the preceding chapters, and I think we can do that now. Because clearly the prayer isn't about Corinth whatsoever. It has nothing to do with the Corinthian situation. The prayer has absolutely nothing to do with the schism or it doesn't make any reference to you know, the main topic of the book, which was baseless hatred and jealousy and divisiveness and, and proper order and any of these things. None of these topics came up in the prayer, which is surprising. So what was the prayer about? The prayer was about, the prayer was about Rome. And if you remember the beginning of the epistle, the very beginning of the epistle, Clement apologizes for the tardiness of this letter. He says, we've been having some problems here. <laughs> now, we would have got to this, uh, we, we would have mailed you this letter sooner, uh, but we've been having some problems here. And so if you were here for the first class, remember I gave you the background of the Domitian persecution that was going on right at this time. And that's what this prayer is all about. This prayer is an address, well it's a, it, it addresses That persecution. It's the same persecution that was going on when the book of Revelation was written, that John was exiled to Patmos. Uh, It's the same thing. And so, if you read through the prayer with the idea in mind that at this time, uh, people are being arrested, property is being seized, people are being deported, they're being put to death, they're being put, you know, they're shipped out, out to islands and marooned on islands and this sort of thing, all on the basis of Roman law. This is government policy. And then read through this, pa- this prayer. It gives you a different perspective. are praying for these officials. Saying, give them health. Give them peace. Give them life. Help them make good decisions that are good for us. Direct their counsels. You know, this sort of thing. Because you, you're, you're the one who have, have put these men in power over us. You know, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty humbling. You think about, uh, you know, Domitian, who has, he's like, uh, he's, uh, he's in the running for Antichrist. He's one of the potential Antichrists. I'm serious. He was like, the, the early church thought he was the Antichrist. It's, they thought it was Nero at first. Then they thought, oh, no, it wasn't Nero. It must have been, it must be Domitian. And then some people thought that Domitian must be Nero come back, you know, <laughs> or said so the spirit of Nero is on Domitian. Think of that. Think of praying for the Antichrist. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. But Clement is a disciple of the apostles. You know what the apostles said about this kind of thing, right? So I'll just give you, just, just for good measure, in case you don't, I'll read you a few passages. Romans 13. Paul writes to the believers in Rome. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which are exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And now Paul says rather naively, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. It's ironic, you know, because this is, of course, Paul uh, writing to Roman believers. And then some decade later, after this epistle, Paul will himself be beheaded by the Roman authorities in Rome. And the, uh, Nero, the neur- Neuronic persecution, the persecution under Nero, will extinguish the community that he's writing to. Uh, but anyway, this is the Apostolic Council. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. The government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, customs to those whom customs due, and fear to those who fear, to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. Yeah, you know, it's interesting about it. It's... Uh, just how, you know, in, in the current political discourse. <laughs> All right, here's another one from Paul. He writes to Timothy. Uh, this is shortly before his arrest. This is, this is being written months before his arrest. And in fact, it's probably being written shortly before the fire, or around the time of the fire of Rome. So shortly before the, new, the the persecution under Nero. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. All right, so what I like about this uh, passage is that he tells, he's writing to Timothy, he's giving him instructions for congregational leadership. He says, uh, First of all, first thing, first order of business in your prayer service, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, kings, and all who are in authority. Now, this is something we don't have here. We need to have here. Every other synagogue has. Every synagogue. Uh, after the torah service has a section of um prayers uh right after the torah service there's this this long section of of blessings sometimes it's split up by other people it's, you can see it in your siddur There's prayers on behalf of the government prayers on behalf of the uh you know the american government prayers on behalf of uh the government in israel prayers on behalf of the IDF prayers you know all these different um institutional prayers you go to a mass. You go to a Catholic church. You have the same thing. And goes, you know, prayers for the ecclesiastical authorities and then prayer for the secular authorities. So same, same thing. So it's, and where does it come from? You know, it's, it comes right out of Jewish tradition. The one I just read. 1 yeah. Timothy 2. Or the previous one? No. You'll find it on your sheet. Uh, where it says obedience to your name and to our rulers and governors on earth. I've got three passages listed. Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, that's all right. First Peter 2. And that's, I'm going to the First Peter one now. This is another of those ironic ones. First 1 Peter, written a year before, maybe a year, maybe a, a, two years at the most, before, before Peter's death, before his crucifixion under Nero. And he writes in First Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, some translations say, whether as to Caesar as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as freemen and do not use your freedom for covering evil. Use it as bond slaves of God and honor all people and love the brotherhood and fear God and honor Caesar, who is like the number one candidate for Antichrist. So you've got Paul telling us to pray for Antichrist, Right now, Clement telling us to pray for Antichrist, and and uh, Peter's telling us to honor the Antichrist. Uh, this is a pretty—I think this is pretty, pretty different perspective than what I hear in the religious political discourse today. You hear from the the far right. The far right uh, talks as if you know, like Barack Obama is the little brother of Adolf Hitler. You know. It's, uh, the rhetoric is, is extreme. The polarization is, I mean, our government's still shut down for crying out loud. It's, you know me, I'm really not a political person, but I find this to be fabulously interesting. Those are our passages. It's a prayer. I can wind this up now. I've made my point, right? The prayer is a prayer for the Roman government. It's a prayer for the believers in a time of persecution, The believers are saying, we're being persecuted, forgive us our sins, help us to walk in a way that will be pleasing to uh, the authorities and to you, and uh, be with the authorities and and give them good counsel. That's essentially... So, one question remains. Now we know what the prayer is about. What does that have to do with anything? It doesn't. It has nothing to do with the situation in Corinth except for the how he set it up. And here's how he set the prayer up. He said, we, however, meaning we believers will be innocent of this sin and will ask with earnest prayer and supplication, which is the prayer that we just read that the creator of the universe may keep intact. The specified number of his elect throughout the whole world through his beloved servant, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, you're not in this prayer. I don't think the prayer was, uh, yeah, I think that's the connection. He's saying, he's saying, if you don't repent, you're not in this prayer. We're not praying for you. And here's the prayer, that we're praying for everybody else. And I don't think that he wrote this prayer for First Clement. I think the prayer is a prayer written by the eldership at Rome, probably by Clement, but I think he wrote the prayer for the synagogues at Rome, for the believing synagogues at Rome, to Is pray. Lit- liturgy? Yeah, it's their liturgical prayer for this time of persecution. And so it's the, they're praying this through the Domitian persecution, and he sends it to Corinth now, tacked on to the end of the letter, saying, and if you don't repent, we're not praying for you when we say these words.